Look at Hosea chapter 6 and 7. You know, um, some people were saying, um, you know, we, we may be here all day. Carlton preached a month, uh, and he preaches an hour when he's here every week. But this, this message is not one that any of us could handle for all day. I, you know, there are messages that are um, so real and so um, so directed towards us as a people uh, that, I, that they're hard to preach from that perspective because everybody gets uncomfortable. Today when I'm preaching, you're going to get uncomfortable, uh, probably. And I'm going to be uncomfortable at times as I preach because these thoughts and words are so directed towards us. We have to remember the context that Hosea is ministering in. He is not talking to the Gentile nations, is he? He's not witnessing against Assyria. Or he's not witnessing against the Babylonians. He's not standing to uh, extol the greatness of Israel and how God uh, has, has, has to bless them because they're such a faithful people. He's witnessing against the people of God in his day. Uh, his message is directed, we might say, to the church, not to the outside world. And chapter 6 and 7, when you get there in Hosea, now we've been through the first five chapters together. Now we're in 6 and 7, and that's where it really starts to get um, uneasy for us. I mean, before, in all the previous chapters, we could kind of look at Gomer in the first three chapters and say, what a pitiful excuse for a wife. I would never treat my spouse that way. We could kind of deflect a lot of the things that were going on in the book before and say they were for others, not for us. But I believe that this message, these chapters are for us. I I know all of them are, but I really believe the context that we live in, in evangelical, conservative America, This is our message. This is what God, I think, would say directly to our hearts. All repentance is not accepted by God. Let that sink in. In a culture where you can open the paper to the faith section of any newspaper... And you can read article upon article about how you can come to God however you please. And you can worship Him on your own terms. And you can get right with Him anytime you desire. I'm saying that God says in His Word in Hosea 6 and 7, I do not accept. All repentance. That should shock us, really. It should jolt us. It should strike fear. It's intended to strike fear. It was in Hosea's day, and it's intended for our day to strike fear in our hearts. There's an instinct inside of all of us as humans called self-preservation. That's an ugly thing, isn't it? I mean, when we just step back and look at it, we're all trying to preserve our own good. Do what's best for us. At the very root level, it is not human to do what's best for other people. It's not human to place the blame on yourself when you're blameworthy. The human response is to do what? Blame it on somebody else. And that's not new. It's not as if that was created in this generation or in the last generation. That dates all the way back to Adam in the garden, doesn't it? If we turn to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, what we find is God's magnificent creative power in in display in Genesis chapter 1. I appreciate so much Bruce's words on the eternal nature of God, the infinity of God. I mean, we looked at a, a snapshot of the heavens this morning. I mean, a a blip on the screen. One cluster out of millions and millions of clusters of what our God created with single words. Let it be. And it was. 
I mean, you realize the God we serve, don't you? You know who He is. Everything in existence today is in existence directly because of God. Everything. When the Hubble telescope goes out and takes pictures thousands and thousands of light years away, God, Yahweh, created that with a simple phrase, let it be, and it was. The energy of God is all over the place. The whole world exists in the vibration of His energy. The whole world is at motion because of Him. That's the God we serve. That's the God that so many people in our day so flippantly say, I'll come when I want, how I want, where I want. I'll say what I want. I'll sing what I want. I'll dress as I want. I'll act as I want. To a God who spreads out the heavens with a simple phrase. To a God who not only spread out the far-flung universe, but He created you. As Dave said in the worship time through song, reading Psalm 139, He has searched you and He has known you. Not just a mass of humanity, He knows you. And so Adam, in the very beginning, understood as well or better than any of us that God knew him. Don't you imagine? I mean, it was God and him and then Eve, right? There was no other people around. God knew them. They were his special creation. Given dominion over the whole world. Right? And they were told one thing not to do. One simple command. What was it? You can eat from every tree in the garden. Every tree. See, see, see people say God limits us. He's such a repressive being. No. God said, have dominion over all of it. It's yours. Eat of any tree you want to eat from. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat of that tree in that day, you will die. One command. One command. I think it probably went well with Adam for a while, you know. He tended the garden. He picked of its fruit. He related with the animals. He obviously named every animal on the face of the earth, when you start thinking you're brilliant and intelligent, just think, we call lions lions because Adam called them that. Cats and dogs, all the things that we realize and classify, he named it. Brilliant mind. The most intelligent man outside of Christ, I believe, to ever walk the earth. One command. You would think a man with this kind of ability would be able to keep one simple command, right? And then we get to chapter 3. And this serpent comes and says to Eve, Did God really mean that you would die? I think what he meant was if you eat of that tree, you'll be like him. God doesn't want anybody to be like him. Eve thought, you know, he has a point. I would like to know good and evil. I mean, I'm pretty smart. I think I deserve to know good and evil. I want to be like God. She wanted to worship how she wanted to worship, when she wanted to worship, where she wanted to worship, on her terms. I want to be God. That was her cry. That was her call. That was her heart's desire. I want to be God. I don't want God. I want to be God. So she took of the fruit and ate. And one of the most damning sentences in all the Scripture is that Adam was standing there. 
because she turned and gave him the fruit. And what did he do? He willfully ate when God said don't eat. Let me tell you, if you're under the misconception today that you can do what you want, when you want, where you want, how you want, and you can come to God when you get good and well pleased to do it, you are sadly and tragically mistaken. You cannot come to God on your terms. You cannot do it. Hosea 6 and 7 are a picture of Israel coming to God how they wanted to. They even used God's language to come to God. That's always nice, isn't it? They use church language to come to God. And God resoundingly puts them out. He resoundingly, He says, you cannot come to me this way. Matter of fact, I will destroy you because you've come to me this way. I do not accept all repentance. So what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden? What happened? They died. In the moment they ate of the fruit of the tree, they died. How do we know they died? Because they immediately saw their nakedness and were ashamed and went to hide it. Something inside them died. The fact that they were innocent died. They could not get that back. The fact that they had the right to live in the dwelling place of God died. All of that died. Far from being God They were separated from God completely in the dark. God came looking for them. And this is where I'm going, so you catch it. Self-preservation exists from Adam to us without exception. What's the first thing Adam did? God said, Adam, what have you done? He didn't say, oh God, I ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Please, God, forgive me. Give me away. Did he? What did he say? That woman you gave to me. Self-preservation. Some of you have lived an entire life of self-preservation. It's always been somebody else's fault because of your sin. It's always been God's fault that you didn't come to Him because of the tragedy that's come into your life. Somebody you loved died. You got sick. You lost your job. Whatever it might be. You got an abusive spouse. Whatever it might be. Those things keep me from God. That is nothing more than an excuse out of the well of self-preservation. I refuse to admit that I myself am at fault for being separated from God. I am a sinner. And I deserve no mercy. How do I get that? I mean, where does that, come, where, where does that thought come from? It comes from Hosea 6, verse 7. And that's, we're going to go back and get all the verses. But I want to show you that I think that verse, verse 7, is the very centerpiece of what God is saying to Israel. But as Adam did, so they did. Look what, look what it says. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. And there they dealt faithlessly with me. Look. Adam was under a covenant with God. If you're, if you're looking for, uh, I don't want to get too far into the systems of theology, okay? But if you're looking for a, a, a statement in the Scriptures to show us that there was a covenant of works which was established with Adam, this verse plainly says there was a covenant. Genesis does not say there was a covenant directly, does it? But I think it's even there implicitly. Do this. What did he say? Do not eat this fruit and you will live. Eat this fruit and you will die. That's covenant language. That's covenant language in Genesis chapter 1. Furthermore, when the covenant was violated, it was repaired the way you repair a covenant. 
somebody had to physically shed blood to cover that transgression. The covenant had been violated. It could not go on as it had previously existed. What happened? Adam was cursed. He tilled the ground with tears and sorrow. Eve was cursed. She bore children now with pain and suffering. The serpent was cursed. He crawled on his belly all the days of his life. And the promise of the ultimate basis of the covenant was given in what we call the Proto-Evangelion. That promise of a son. You will bear a son. And the serpent will strike his heel and he will crush the head of that serpent. That's the promise of the future remedy to the breaking of this covenant. But intermixed between the breaking of the covenant and the thousands of years of history when Christ came and died to pay the price for the covenant eternally, what was implemented? The death of an animal as a picture of the need for blood to pay for the sins of the people. God shed the blood of an animal. We're not told what it is. And they were clothed in the skin of that animal. And they were taken from the garden and told, you can never come back. You can't get back to where you once were by yourself. Okay? So the the covenant of works is simply God's covenant with Adam from the very beginning that if you obey, you will live. If you disobey, you will die. Adam disobeyed. He broke the covenant. Adam broke the covenant Not just for Adam, but in Romans chapter 5, we're told Adam broke the covenant and we all broke the covenant with Adam. Adam's sin was not imputed to all of us. When Adam sinned, we all sinned because he was the human representative between God and And in God's covenant, he was the federal, we might say, representative head of the human race. It's not as if God unjustly took Adam's sin and extrapolated it over generations and said, so you all are guilty. No. In other words, when Adam sinned, you take yourself and put yourself in the garden. God says you would have done the exact same thing. As a matter of fact, you did do it. You were not passive in your initial sin. Initial, our, our, our natural condition is not a passive thing. We all are actively rebellion, rebellious against God from our conception. It's a part of who we are. He is our head. We have all fallen. We have all entered into this well, this spring of self-preservation. I will maintain my outward Righteousness I will maintain. My standing before God my way. And that's the way it's been. Generation after generation. If you need proof, Genesis chapter 4 is the proof. Adam's children didn't eat fruit. Adam's children killed one another. Sin is in all of us. And Adam broke the covenant and deserved eternal death. And yet God in His mercy established the covenant of grace, which from Genesis chapter 3 throughout time and eternity will stand as the agreement, the covenant between God and man. Based on the blood of Jesus Christ alone, we have been repurchased, twice bought, redeemed, By the blood of Jesus Christ. The Lamb which was slain before the foundation of the world. And now we stand forgiven by Him. By His blood we are healed. We are forgiven. We have entered into a relationship with God forever. And so there's no way. Listen, this is the key. You say, what is all this jargon about covenant and dispensations and all that? I don't get into all that. I don't want you to get into all that necessarily. But I do want to tell you this. This, this is a fabulous, a re- amazing truth. That when you finally, when God grants that you understand this truth, it will revolutionize the way you see yourself, you see God, you see eternity. 
You and I, because we are bought by the blood of Christ, cannot fall. Ultimately, we cannot fall. There will be no opportunity for a replay of sin in heaven. Not because heaven is sin-free zone. Not because of what heaven is. Not because, because remember, Lucifer sinned in heaven. And that should be worrisome to you. Like, how do we know we're not going to get there and start this thing all over again, right? I mean, what if we get there and we worship fine for a few thousand years and then somebody gets the bright idea to lead a rebellion against God and the third of heaven goes with them and then we start this whole cycle over? How do we know it can't happen? Because of Christ. Because you and I will enter the gate of heaven by the blood of Jesus Christ. As long as that blood pleads on our behalf, we cannot fall. I'm telling you, until Christ Himself sins, you cannot fall from grace. Therefore, it's impossible. If the covenant was based on my work or your work, when we fail, we would fall from grace. But it's not based on your work and it's not based on my work. It's based on the work of God in Christ. So the covenant is sure. It cannot fail because its foundations are sure. And they cannot fail. Now if you can't get excited about the fact that there is no way to be separated from the love of God because of Christ Jesus, then then your wood's more than wet. You might not have any wood. You might be lost. You need to check where you are. With Christ, I'm telling you, it's not hopeful that we will live with Him for eternity. It is guaranteed. Why? Not because of me. Not because of you. Look, you can leave this place as a born-again believer. And you can live a very average life. Or you can live here empowered by the blood of Christ. Assured of your salvation by the blood of Christ. And live a victorious life. I'm convinced that this doctrine is keeping us from living the victorious life. Because we're so caught up on ourselves. Oh, I did good today, so God loves me. Oh, I did bad today, I better go hide from God. I can't pray, I can't read my Bible, I can't go to church, I'm a sinner. That's not what your relationship with God is based on. Whether you've done good or not. You have been brought into a covenant which cannot be broken because its foundation is sure. The foundation is Jesus Christ. Thank God Adam sinned. I mean, I I know that sounds bad. Thank God Adam sinned. If he had not sinned and fallen, we could all be in danger of falling, of falling from grace. I'm telling you, he had to fall. We had to be fallen. Or we'd be no more than the angels. The angels envy our position. They envy us. Because yes, they have been obedient. And yes, they are righteous. And yes, they are in the face and in the presence of God Himself. Day and night. And you would think, we ought to envy them. No. They envy us because they say, they have something we've never experienced. They were lost and found. Dead and made alive worthless and given worth, had no inheritance. They were given inheritance. They were not children of God. And now they are children of God. The angels of heaven say, Oh, how wonderful. Oh, how marvelous is the love of our God. And they sing that praise because Adam failed. I tell you, we serve a God who is so marvelous. So gracious, so good. A God who flings the universe into existence and yet intimately comes into being with us in Christ. In the person of Christ, He is intimate with us to say, follow me, come after me, come and drink from the well. If you're thirsty, eat from the bread. If you're hungry, have me and you have it all. We serve a marvelous God. And yet, like Israel, we often often play this game of false repentance. Adam, let me just tie up this thing about the covenant. 
God had a covenant with Adam. I said that. Adam broke the covenant by desiring to be his own God. Adam's sin was the cause of death for him and all mankind. Adam's sin was not hidden from God. Adam and Eve tried to defend their sin by blaming someone other than themselves. That's the self-preservation that goes on in all of us. God punished the sin, but redeemed the sinner. Like our desire to sin comes from our nature. Our self-preservation is natural instinct, which we live by. Today, in this message, I want to talk about what is unnatural to us. I want to show what is unnatural to us by looking at what we naturally do in response to our sin. We are sinners. I don't think anybody in here would disagree with that statement that you are a sinner and I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. But we naturally respond in self-preservation. Now I want to give you the alternative. How can we respond then, Carlton? What repentance does God accept? If He doesn't accept all repentance, what does He accept? Right? That's what we want to know before we go from these doors. Okay, well let's look at that. Repentance... Number one, repentance motivated by self-preservation is not accepted by God. Untold thousands of people will go to hell from the United States of America because they're being told Christ is the best option. So if you want fire insurance, if you don't want to burn in hell, Take the shot. Take the plunge. Say the prayer. Walk the aisle. Sign the card. Join the church. Do some good things. So I hope you got. I'm telling you, the fires of hell are being stoked by the thousands who come to Christ out of self-preservation. They don't want Jesus. They just don't want to suffer. That is not the basis of salvation. In the Bible. Jesus is the best alternative. Now I would agree with a statement. By Jonathan Edwards. That no man is saved that doesn't fear hell. I mean it's right to fear hell. Hell is a real place. Where real souls and in the future bodies. Will suffer for eternity. But that is not. Cannot be the basis for your salvation. A fear of hell. It just can't be. Look with me at verse 15 of chapter 5. I will return again to my place, he says. Well, let me, uh, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. So God says, until Israel acknowledges their sin and seeks after me, I'm going back and I'm separating myself from them. I'll have nothing to do with them. And in their distress, they earnestly seek me. That's what he said. I'm done with them until they come after me. I'm going, I'm going back to my place, right? Well, look at the opening of, verse, of chapter 6. These are the words of Israel. Come, let us return to the Lord. You say, repentance! God doesn't accept all repentance. Some of you have repented with your mouth. Some of you have said that prayer. Some of you have been inoculated with the gospel that says all you do is you say this prayer, then you live a good life the best you can, go to church, say your prayers at night before you go to bed, and that it'll go well with you at the judgment. Come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us. They recognize their position, don't they? Do they? For He has torn us. Look at the focus. For He has torn us. That He may heal us. He has struck us down. And He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up. That we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. He is going out. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers. As the spring rains that water the earth. Repentance. Right? It's a beautiful prayer, isn't it? God rejects it. I want us to look at something that's missing from the prayer. Maybe you've already seen it. Do you notice something missing in this prayer? Come, 
Let us go to God. Sounds good, doesn't it? He will restore us because He's torn us apart. He will put us back together because He's ripped us apart. Oh, He withheld Himself for two days, but on the third day, He's going to come back. And we're going to be lifted up to dwell in His presence. And, and, and the evangelical church says, Amen, brother. Good to have you in the family. And God says, No. No. That's not the basis of salvation. What's missing? What's the link? What's, what's not here? Have they admitted any fault? Look at it again. Where is it in this prayer that they say, we are sinners? We have failed. We deserve God's wrath. Oh God, help us. Where's their brokenness? Where's their cry from their depths of sin for salvation? Where is it? It doesn't exist. Because this repentance is not based on the fact that they know they're sinners and they know there's a Savior. This repentance is based on the fact that times are hard, things aren't going well, so I want things to go well. I'm going to play the church card. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people who walked aisles at evangelical crusades and churches and in coffee shops and in streets and byways have said, oh, the economy's bad. Oh, my life is bad. My marriage is bad. My health is bad. My children are bad. Everything's bad. Oh, I'll cry to Jesus and He'll save me. No. No, He won't. Your self-preservation cannot be the basis for your salvation. Not even if it is, I want to go to heaven. You can't be saved because it's bad here, and you can't be saved because it's bad in hell, and you cannot be saved because you think heaven's a good place. Oh, when I go to heaven, Brother Carl. Oh, Pastor, when I get to heaven. It's going to be like playing golf for all of eternity. We've got pop songs or country songs. Right? They say, if heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go. If it ain't got a grand old Opry, I'd just as soon stay home. Really? I don't imagine it has a grand old Opry. I don't imagine it's a lot like Dixie. Heaven. You cannot be saved by your preconceived idea of what heaven will be. Oh, Mama and Papa are going to be there. It's going to be a family reunion. We're going to live in mansions, the streets of gold. I mean, aren't you even a little put off by this flippant way we talk? about God. What we're saying is, God, if you can't fix my temporal problems, then I don't want to serve you. But if you can, I'll repent and I'll I'll be good. What we're saying is, God, if heaven ain't what I want it to be, then I'd just soon stay home. And God is saying, that half-baked, adulterous, Weak, crooked, and perverse repentance is not accepted. That's what God's saying to us. He said it to Israel, and He's saying it to us, church. Let us return to the Lord because He's torn us so He can heal us. We want to be healed. We want to be bound up. We want to be revived. We want to dwell in His presence. It's all about what they want for themselves, isn't it? That's not repentance. God does not accept that. God, secondly, sees our sin. He identifies our sin and He calls us to true repentance. That's verses 4 through chapter 7, verse 2. Look with me at that passage. God's response to their repentance is, What am I going to do with you? I've laid out the charges in the first five chapters. Hosea has lived this living picture of your relationship with me, and you don't get it. 
You don't understand. What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, Judah? You, your love, your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. What's he describing? He's describing wholesale the way people for today follow him. Oh, and the business is good. Man, I remember the 90s. Y'all remember the 90s when business was good? People were making millions of dollars in the stock market and in their businesses. Things were great and grand. Man, people, you could talk to them on the street and people were saying, Oh, God is so good. Oh, God's good, boy. Bless Him for blessing us. That was our attitude, wasn't it? What's happened now? The economy collapses and what do people start to say? Oh, woe is me. Where is God when you need Him? It's the same heart Israel had. Oh, and they were conquering the promised land. And when Joshua was exploiting the Canaanites and giving them their promises, oh, they were excited. They were ecstatic. God is real. God is good. God is with us. He is our God. And when things went bad, boy, they turned to everything but Him. Maybe He's not the real God. Maybe it's not true. Maybe we should go our own way. And they went their own way. And now God's calling them to repentance and they come back to Him with this half-hearted, God, if you'll forgive us the good things, give us the good life, we'll serve you. God rejects that and He begins to identify their sin. Let's look at their sin. Your love is like a morning cloud. It goes away quickly. Therefore... I've hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by my words. And my judgment goes forth as light. When God said, let there be light, light invaded the darkness. Everywhere is the picture we get. There was no darkness anywhere. He had to, remember, he had to create daytime and night. Because when he spoke light into existence, that was all that existed then. My judgment has gone out like the light. When God said, let there be light, there was light. When God said, let these people be judged, it was utter judgment. And it went to every home, in every place, in every person. It's gone forth like the light. Their sin of a devotion to things, gifts, rather than God, the giver, has caused them misery. For I desire, look at what God desires, steadfast love. Not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. One way to know whether your repentance is true, whether you've really been repentant in your heart and come to Christ, is do you love God and do you know Him? I can't urge you enough to go home and spend your time contemplating whether you really love God or whether you love the things He has given to you. I came face to face a few weeks ago with believers who live in a repressive society. There is no advantage to being a Christian in the People's Republic of China. Business owners who have the threat of losing their businesses, being imprisoned, losing their lives. Standing out on the curb as we left one man's shop, I said without really even thinking, God bless you. It's like he almost came out of his skin. He had that deer in the headlights look. He was examining us head to toe. And he said, in a whisper, are you a believer? Yes. Tears in eyes. I mean, so thrilled to meet another believer. You could see the light of Christ in this man. When you walk through his shop, laying on his desk, was a Bible. For that offense alone, he could pay a severe price. And yet, because of who Christ is, 
And because he loved Christ, it was worth it to him. In those societies, we often pity Christians, and yet I would say they have an advantage over us in that if they are Christians, I mean, there's no advantage to playing Christian there, is what I'm saying. If they are, they are. And if they aren't, they aren't. Here, what I'm telling you, we're a lot like Israel. There's all types of advantages to being a Christian person. By that, I mean a moral, religious person. All kinds of advantages. You can advance in most businesses practicing Christian ethics because you work hard, because you're honest, because you're uh, obedient to your bosses. You can get advancement in our society for acting like a Christian. Therefore, I believe there are thousands and maybe some in this room who are playing the part. And your repentance is based on your work and the fact that you want the gifts from God, not the giver, God Himself. And what I'm saying to you is God rejects that. I believe we probably would all do well to be in a country like China for a while where it was repressive to be a Christian. I'm not God. We're not there. I know. I'm not trying to play God. I just think there's some pruning that's got to start happening in our church, in churches, in our culture. Some pruning away has got to start. And it needs to start with us. God doesn't accept their repentance. God numbers their sin. They don't love Him. They don't know Him. They violated the covenant. And they've led others to violate the covenant. That's what verse 9 is all about. As robbers lie and wait for man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. I don't know, but my feeling, my belief is, I don't know for sure. I mean, they may have been killing people on the way to the temple. Maybe. But I do know this. They were leading an entire nation to death by their false religion. They willfully rejected God and then led others into rejecting God. We know that some of these priests who banded together killed the prophets. The New Testament tells us they did. So whether they were committing murder, mass murder on the streets to the temple, I don't know that. But I do know by the fact that they band together against the true gospel and led the people into false religion, they were murdering them by the millions. They were committing mass murder. So they not only didn't love God themselves, they led others not to love God. They are whores. That's what God calls them. You are a whore. Israel is defiled. God says, I would heal Israel of their iniquity. But they've dealt fault, they deal falsely. And thieves break in and bandits raid us. Finally, after God rejects their repentance and numbers their sin and calls them to true repentance, He then outlines for them their false repentance. And I want to end by doing that for you. I said earlier, False repentance is not accepted by God. I've, I've spent the, the majority of the message telling you what false repentance is. False repentance is self-preserving. If I don't repent, bad things will happen, so I'm going to repent. False repentance is based on usually a love of the things God gives rather than God Himself. I want the good things of Christianity, so therefore I'll repent. I'll come to God. God describes their repentance, and it's... It's eerie how similar it is to us. Look what he says on verse 6. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flame. All of them are as hot as an oven. He's describing their adulterous hearts. Sexually and religiously, they are adulterous. They burn with passion that is unrestrained. This is a season in Israel where adultery is commonplace. I believe that hand in hand we can see the rejection of God 
and the fall of people into sexual perversion. Romans chapter 1 tells us that. I believe Hosea tells us that. The Bible tells us that. Is it any wonder that our nation suffers from full-blown sexual perversion at the same time it suffers from a rejection of God as a nation? We are on this path. That's what I'm saying to you. We are Israel. No different in our reaction to God. He goes down and then says that Ephraim, he says, is a cake that's not turned in verse 8. It's like a pancake. It gets done on one side and the other side still has raw dough. He says that's what Israel's repentance is like. It's half-baked. They want the good things, but they don't want the giver. They want deliverance, but they don't want to accept the covenant. It's half-baked. Half-hearted, we might say. Then he says, describing for them, to them that they're like a dove. They're silly. They're without their senses. They run to Assyria and to Egypt to save them rather than run to me in repentance. And then finally, he says in verse 16, they're like a treacherous bow. A, crooked, a bow that shoots crooked arrows. They're worthless in battle. That's what our repentance often is like. So what is true repentance? Repentance, number one, repentance is rooted in our acknowledgement of who we are. You cannot repent of what you don't believe yourself to be guilty of. You cannot. You must know that you are a sinner. Secondly, repentance is rooted in the knowledge of God. You're a sinner and God is righteous. Third, repentance is motivated, is rooted, is motivated with a desire For Christ. Not for heaven. Not for eternal life. Not for temporal blessings. For Christ. Jesus did not say, Come to heaven, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and heaven will give you rest. Jesus said, Come to me. He did not say, All of you who are thirsty, come to the well of good gifts. And you will be satisfied. He said all of you who are thirsty. Come and drink from the spring of life. Me. Jesus didn't say come and eat from the banquet table of heaven. The banquet table of temporal blessings. It will provide all you need. He said I am the banquet table and the bread. He who eats of me shall live forever. I'm telling you repentance is based in the fact you know You are a sinner. Brokenness is the word. Brokenness is the word. We no longer use or have in our vocabulary, it seems. Brokenness. It seems common sense, but it is so far from what we actually practice. People come to Christ saying in their minds and hearts, "I, I, I want God to help me. They don't come saying, oh God, I'm broken. I'm undone. How will it go with Israel? Well, we're going to continue through our look at Hosea. Hosea 7 ends and Hosea 8 begins and you probably read in your little uninspired heading, they're going to reap the whirlwind. I know this is not a message that is uh, popular, nor does it make you feel good on the inside. That wasn't the intention. If you leave feeling good about yourself, the word has failed, and it doesn't fail. I'm certain you're going to leave here feeling like we got beat up 
We got beat up. I mean, he just blasted us. I blasted myself. I blasted us. I'm with you. We all struggle from this same sin. Self-preservation, independence, and the lack of knowledge of who we are and who God is. I'm not pointing the finger at you. I'm saying we suffer. And there's one solution. There's one remedy. And his name is Christ. How do I know I've been given repentance? When Christ is your desire. When Christ is your desire, you've been given the gift of repentance. If He is not your desire, no matter how earnest you may be, you have no hope. So this is where you're supposed to have the altar call, right? And ask people to come want Christ. We're not going to do it. I'm going to leave it with you. And I'm going to plead with you to search and know whether you are in Christ or not. Whether you want Christ or you don't. You can't make that happen. I'm going to give you a clue in your search. You cannot. Anytime you say, I'm going to, you start out the sentence with, I'm going to want Christ more. It's failed. You can't muster it up inside. It's not natural. It's a gift of God. So what do I do? Plead with Him. You say, how do you get that? Well, in Acts 16, Paul was asked, what must I do to be saved? And he commanded the man to repent and believe. But notice what the man does. He doesn't go out and do anything. The man from the inside was changed. Go read the passage. It's interesting. He doesn't go tell his family what he did. He goes and explains to them what God has done. What I'm saying to you is plead with God to break you, to show himself to you, to reveal to you the beauty of Christ, to give you a hunger and a thirst for him. And that is the way of salvation. That is the hope of the nations. Let's pray. Father.